don't ever think you're better than a drug addict because your brain works the same as theirs. You have the same circuits and drugs would affect your brain in the same way it affects theirs. The same thought process that makes them screw up over and over again would make you screw up over and over as well if you were in their shoes. You probably already are doing it, just not with heroin or crack, but with food or cigarettes or something else that helps you embrace the void. you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 179 of Embrace the Void, where everything is the same but also different. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a fun chat on two of life's greatest treasures, food and drugs. So, let's put it in our mouths. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Dr. Joey Tuminello an assistant professor of philosophy at McNeese State University, a program coordinator for the nonprofit orgs Farm Forward and Better Food Foundation, and one of my very closest IRL philosophy brothers. Joey, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, void. <laughs> Dude, it's so good to hear from you. I'm, I'm so excited. Joey and I met when we were paired as roommates at the in the CSU system for our master's program, and it was the most impressive experience I've ever had with AI in my entire life. We were totally meant for each other. I have missed our very lengthy riffs on why everything is the same, but also different and super oh. weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that it's been 10 years, too, since we did that program. It makes me want to do like the 10 years from Gross Point Blank bit. I how know. have you been? What have you been? Have you been stayed busy during this boring, uneventful decade? Oh man, I wish I wish that it was a little more boring. Uh, I've spent let's see, I, we graduated in 2012 from Colorado State's master's program, and then I really just mm-hmm. dove straight into a PhD in philosophy after that. So uh, my partner and I moved to University of North Texas in Denton. Uh, which is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and then stay there for several years while I was finishing coursework and going ABD, basically. And then we moved Mm -hmm. to uh, Corvallis, Oregon in 2016, whenever she started a PhD program at Oregon State. And uh, I was basically adjuncting there while finishing my dissertation. And that took us through 2019. And I went on the market uh, a couple times and ended up getting an offer 
in the state I grew up in, in Louisiana. And so that's how I ended up working at McNeese State University in Lake Charles. And we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, later, but I've also been working since, really since our time in, in Colorado with uh, the nonprofit organization Foreign, Farm Forward on several different advocacy projects. And then more recently, uh, started doing some work with their, what I refer to as a sister organization, Better Food Foundation, uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, trying to pay the bills with philosophy and activism, <laughs> it's an ongoing yeah. struggle, but, you know, fulfilling, fulfilling. <laughs> it's a bit of a project. Yes. I do remember, yeah, you getting into Farm Forward while we were still hanging out out there in Colorado. Do you want to let folks know a little bit about, like, what is your sort of background and philosophical interests that had you ending up in, in places like Farm Forward? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as I mentioned, I grew up in Louisiana, and I really, for undergrad, I just wanted, I was playing in a bunch of bands at the time, and didn't want to leave necessarily, or at least at that time. And so I did my bachelor's at University of Louisiana in Lafayette, and I majored in philosophy. Our department there was heavily focused on philosophy of mind and cognitive science, um, but also got my feet wet in more general issues and uh, didn't really have any experience or knowledge of applied ethics. But whenever I started applying to master's programs, Colorado State came up. I had recently started thinking more about food ethics and specifically uh, animal ethics and industrial agriculture around then, just not not directly related to my philosophical training. Um, but I ended up getting into Colorado State's master's program. And then Colorado State is a land-grant school and with an agricultural focus. And then I ended up taking some courses related to applied mm-hmm. ethics I and mean, a lot of good general training but I took a couple classes. I know you were in at least one of them with me with uh, Bernie Rowland. And I was, that, yeah, I just think about Bernie's applied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that really got me more directly interested in uh, socially relevant philosophy. Yeah, we could say applied ethics. Sometimes people are critical of that term for understandable reasons uh, because a lot of people mm-hmm. who, are, who claim to be applied ethicists are publishing articles in journals of applied philosophy that are not necessarily making an impact outside the university. So I've really tried to to gear at least some of my efforts into uh, more socially engaging projects. And uh, that took me into University of North Texas. And uh, Colorado State also has a good focus in environmental ethics, though Holmes Ralston was emeritus Mm -hmm. by the time we got there. But they have Katie McShane and I think now some other good people doing work in that area. So University of North Texas became sort of a natural uh, progression from Colorado State because it's one of the uh, top schools for environmental philosophy. And um, that's what made me end up out there. And then I've just been traveling around teaching and all that stuff since then, though my work at North Texas got me more acquainted with uh, what we might refer to as the continental tradition uh, of philosophy and also sort of moving not not abandoning uh, food ethics, but sort of looking at the relationship between food ethics and other branches of philosophy under the umbrella of the philosophy of food project that my advisor, uh, David M. Kaplan, runs at the University of North Texas. Yeah, and from what I uh, heard, I actually recently spoke with 
uh, Beth out there. At CSU has picked up a few more applied ethicists since we were last there. So oh, nice. if anybody out there is, is looking for a place to do some applied uh, ethics, Colorado State University is the place to be. Yeah, Fort Collins is an amazing city. Oh, it's so good. I miss it. I miss it so uh, bad. It was I a know. gorgeous place to live. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but then again, you're back, you know, in a place where you can still get some good food, at least. So there is that. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of getting a tenure track job in your home state, if you want to do that, a lot of people don't. And I don't blame them. You know, we all have different relationships with our family. But it was kind of Mm -hmm. I saw it as a rare opportunity to be able to have a decent job close to home in philosophy. And so, of course, that was kind of disrupted by the pandemic, which started about seven months or at least the shutdown story about seven months after we had moved back to Louisiana. Um, but, you know, in general, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, to be about 90 minutes away from, from both my family and my partner's family and look forward to seeing them more frequently. Um, hopefully soon. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's super good though. Um, have you been surviving all right with the online education uh, activities? Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. So I, you know, I'm grateful for the the privilege of not having to be in public to do my job. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not the biggest fan of online education, but it, yeah, I'm doing my best to create a, an engaging experience for my students. And really, um, so mostly, I'm teaching lots of sections of biomedical ethics. We just have a large nursing program at McNeese, and uh, one of those classes is for their R into BSN program which is for basically people who are already registered nurses that got their R that became RNs without getting a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree initially. And then they're going back to school for their bachelor's. So that's a lot of older students that are in full-time jobs with family. And um, really it's been, uh, I mean, I'm grateful to be in this spot to, to provide support for them during the pandemic. A lot of them were, are working in COVID units. A lot of them are administering tests uh, and now probably vaccines to people and just, um, you know, undergoing just a ton of stress on top of the stress that's already entailed in, nur- in nursing. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's been it's been an interesting opportunity for me. I think a, a good one in general. And I've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. That's rough. I took uh, I taught foundations of medical ethics to roughly a similar kind of cohort this past semester as well. And it's, I, I struggle, I always struggle with grading, but I feel like I struggled even more with like grading these individuals during right. a pandemic. I'm like, yeah. I, I, what do I, what do I say to you? <laughs> like, like how, how could I ever not just say, yeah, you're great. Move along. I know. I know. I feel that, you know, I'm just trying to, create a situation where they can come away with something but it also mm-hmm. they bring so much to the class um and, and i'm just yeah i've been grateful mm-hmm. for the experience that's great so let's talk a little bit of, of theory and then we can get into some practice uh like proper you know um ivory towerites yes uh and then we'll, we'll, we'll make it fun we'll talk about theory of food and drugs so you did a paper on titled hermeneutics of food and drug regulatory policy um now i'm curious I feel like I just maybe barely started to understand what the word hermeneutics actually means this year a little bit, but I'm curious for you to explain how you're using it and like what your thesis is in this paper, because it seems really interesting to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So hermeneutics, uh, the root in there is a reference to the Greek god Hermes, which is the messenger of the gods. 
And really, I think a good way of understanding it is thinking about, I don't know if you've ever played the game Telephone Pictionary. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Where someone is, uh, you tell someone a phrase, they have to draw a picture, pass it to someone else. And then you kind of at the end get to show differing interpretations uh, and are the way that people have just misconstrued what someone else has said and the way that that's been kind of perpetually either distorted or at least maybe refined or somehow shifted over time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in general, hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. Um, I'll get to the, the kind of contemporary philosophical understanding of that, but uh, the importance of interpretation in philosophy is, is obviously huge and goes back at least to discussions uh, of Aristotle, uh, including in the poetics and rhetoric. So Plato and Aristotle both agreed that poetry and art were acts of mimesis or imitation. For Plato, that was a really bad thing because it was at, it was so many steps removed from, from the true nature of reality of the forms. Aristotle basically disagreed on that point and thought that mimesis could be a way to truth, that, that art uh, and poetry and things of that nature are not necessarily going to be uh, removed or making the truth further obscured, but that it can be disclosed uh, through interpretation. Um, specifically of art in that case. Um, As a distinct tradition, uh, hermeneutics really began as biblical or scriptural hermeneutics and basically textual theory. Uh, How should we interpret this text, specifically with an emphasis on the intended meaning of the authors of those particular texts? And so it was a kind of attempt to get back to those origins of thought as people were working their way through uh, especially biblical and scriptural texts. Um, as we got into the late 18th, early 19th century, there were some philosophers and textual theorists like Schleiermacher and Dilthey that um, started to make moves beyond this exclusive concern with authorial intent or what an author means whenever they write something uh, to concerns about meaning making for that reader, uh, interpreting it within their particular historical and cultural context. This uh, continues to move forward into the the early 20th century where Martin Heidegger um, engaged in a discussion of this idea that whenever we're talking about interpretation, it's not simply a matter of getting clear on texts as we conventionally understand texts, but he really expanded hermeneutics to embrace this idea of world as text. Um, that the, the world itself and the different aspects of the world or text to be interpreted. Um, so that basically... <laughs> everything was a book. Yeah, yeah. Or basically that, that interpretation permeates our experience, right? Um, mm-hmm. our, yeah, like our experiences in general and, and specific ones are necessarily interpretive. Um, so Heidegger's student Hans-Georg Gadamer um, talked about what he referred to as this prejudice against prejudice uh, that he saw in in some enlightenment thinkers. Basically, um, I mean, Nietzsche talks about this to some extent as well, but but there is this sort of mistaken assumption or just like an assumption that a lot of people didn't critically reflect on that we we have this access to, you know, what Kant might call the, the noumenal, right? that there is this sort of uh, uncritical understanding that we can have access to the nature of reality outside of interpretation. And so hermeneutics mm-hmm. is essentially denying that. Uh, importantly, 
it's not, and you know, whenever you, you see a lot of people discuss this, like, I don't know if I want to name names, but you know, there's a whole set of bad YouTube videos discussing things under, sometimes under the umbrella of postmodernism that make this, this questionable assumption that this entails discarding truth, or it's just a chaotic free-for-all, right, or relativism as we often understand it. And that's really not, mm -hmm. to me, I don't believe that's what hermeneutics is about. It's about understanding that, um, you know, our experience is going to be interpretive. Um, that makes it very important to dialogue with one another. It makes it important to become or to cultivate an awareness of our interpretations as, as interpretations, right? Uh, to kind of, to basically avoid dogmatism, right? Because our, mm -hmm. our understandings of reality and of ourselves but can become calcified over time. We start to, or reified, right? We start to take those things to just be references to the things themselves. And that leads not only to potential errors, but also I think it leads to a lot of issues with control and authority, right? Um, because people yeah. assert, you know, in secular or religious context that they, not only that they have some kind of access to the nature of reality, uh, but that you ought to follow me now, you ought to believe what I have to say, and that, you know, regardless of whether or not those people believe what they're claiming in those cases, I think it leads to a lot of basically asymmetrical power structures or, you know, cultivating the certain sense of authority over others. Um, and so to me, that's, that's one, of the, one of the benefits of hermeneutics is that it kind of helps, it's kind of a reminder to me, you know, in, in that sense, it it feels like what I'm saying is nothing new in philosophy, right? That's probably some right. hermeneutics, right? But to me, it's a it's a reminder that of the the role of interpretation in experience and understanding. Yeah, that's very. That was, that was a really impressive. I was not expecting quite such a detailed history of hermeneutics. I really appreciated that, and I know probably listeners who've seen that word and struggled to understand it will appreciate that little bit of deep dive there. Do you want to then apply that? How, how does how does this then apply for food and drug regulatory policy, and why why do you feel like it matters in that realm? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Briefly, before I get to that specific application, I'll just kind of talk about my broadening of interest mm -hmm. in philosophy of food um, in terms of not simply food ethics, but the way that ethics overlaps with other branches of philosophy as it relates to food. Um, and so um, that was one of my interests in going to North Texas was that David M. Kaplan is there. And so at the time, he had just released a co or yeah, he had just released an edited volume on philosophy of food. And there's a lot of great work in there. Um, really, his introduction to that volume provides an awesome um, springboard for future research in philosophy of food because he's like, well, we often talk about it in terms of food ethics. That's not a bad thing, but there's all these other branches that are important and interesting that also overlap with ethics um, that have been either um, not considered at all or considered kind of implicitly in a lot of that literature. And so, you know, he talks about food epistemology, questions about trust and food safety, um, food aesthetics, right? Um, notions of taste applied to um, our experiences of consuming food. He talks about food metaphysics, or what he might refer to as food ontology, questions about what food is uh, or what makes a particular food a member of that category. Um, and so whenever I read that, that really became the springboard for my dissertation project, um, 
which I had uh, talked about. I had called it uh, something like the food drug relationship in health and medicine. One of my committee members said she didn't like the title because the food drug relationship sounds like a medical <laughs> term to the way that foods and drugs interact with each other. And what, what I was getting at yeah. is the, the relationship between how we understand those ontological categories of food and medicine or food and drugs broadly construed. Um, and so you, uh, maybe you could title it, uh, okay, I'll bite. What is food? Yeah, I, I, I love it. I mean, I've been, actually, I, I have another title that I've been saving, uh, because oh, I yeah. was like, I, I don't want to call my dissertation the best title. Um, so I was, cause I am, I've published, a, this is one of the articles adapted from my dissertation. I have another one that came out a couple years ago. And so I'm trying to maybe adapt it into a book. You know, there's a lot that goes along with that. But I was thinking food and drug ontologies, a hermeneutics of edible things. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I put it in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I kind of adopt this technical term of edible things to refer to those things that we understand as edible or that can be eaten. Um, and so whenever I'm talking about drugs, I'm not necessarily talking about the injection of drugs or other forms of ingestion, but specifically those things that we eat that we sometimes understand as either food or drug or sometimes as both um, or sometimes maybe overlapping or on a continuum with one another. Um, and so, yeah. 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 So how do those like, how do you tease apart those definitions to some extent? Do you have yeah, like, so a clear sense of that? Well, in a way, I don't. Uh, I kind of have this. I kind of have this aversion to, you know, the standard conceptual analysis or listing out the the necessary and sufficient conditions for something to be considered, you know, a member of a particular category. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that that's a bad project to undertake. Like, I would love to see more work in that. But I was kind of trying in in my dissertation more generally, and also in this particular article, to tease out the underlying in, in interpretations that support particular views of how we understand those categories and then how that might be active in this case for this article uh, within regulatory policy. Um, and so I'm looking specifically in this paper, um, I'm looking at um, one, I'm looking at the, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994 that was passed in the U.S. in that year uh, regarding the Food and Drug Administration's regulation of those uh, entities. And I'm looking at the establishment of the Ministry of AYUSH, A-Y-U-S-H, which stands for Ayurveda, Yoga, and Naturopathy, Unani, Siddha, and Homeopathy. Uh, that was introduced as a separate ministry within uh, Indian food and drug regulation in 2014. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at the philosophical positions, the interpretations of the categories of food and drug that undergird um, those bodies and regulatory policies and trying to understand how they function in terms of their advantages and disadvantages, basically. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, so for this article, I'm basically trying to discuss four major claims that I'm making. So one of them is that these regulatory policies are undergirded by philosophical assumptions about how we understand the ontological categories of food and drugs, um, that the, the, we can call it DSHEA, D-S-H-E-A for um, Food and Drug Administrations Act, 
rests on a dichotomous interpretation of the food-drug relationship that is one which understands these categories as fundamentally separate from one another. That the India's Ministry of Ayush rests on an interpretation of the food-drug relationship that understands these categories as overlapping with one another, uh, which is not to say that um, there is no possible separation, but that there is this room for overlap between how we understand edible things, that they don't necessarily have to be in one category or another. Um, and then that each of these approaches through the regulation of edible things has particular advantages and disadvantages um, that we should recognize and evaluate. Um, so for me, the, the role of hermeneutics in there is to try to, again, provide a reminder that um, these are interpretations, which is not to say that that means that they have to be discarded, but it just means that whatever view we have is going to be undergirded by interpretations. And helping us to realize that can, at the very least, it can try to provide a corrective to dogmatism that can lead to potential dangers on either side of, of these perspectives. Yeah, and it seems like we're not going to be able to avoid having some kind of um, interpretations because we need some kind of regulation. We don't want, you know, an unregulated food and drug universe, I think. So we have to, as best we can, come up with some way to discuss these things. So that, that seems to be at least sort of one important benefit of, of biting the bullet on trying to sort of not just keep it all out, out in the open, all free form or something like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, I'm definitely not, I'm not proposing the sort of chaotic situation where we just, where we just discard everything. And yeah, but, but basically I'm looking at the way that, um, so for instance, uh, the, the DSHEA or Deshaies Act limited the power of the FDA in regulating their products. Um, so previously, mm -hmm. before, before that act was introduced, um, sup dietary supplement manufacturers couldn't make drug-like claims in any form at all. Um, this act basically allowed them to instead say that an untested product, for instance, promotes healthful cholesterol levels, but not that it lowers cholesterol that it might support mm. regularity in digestive processes, but you couldn't say that it relieves constipation. You could say that certain supplements maintain healthy joints, not that they reduce symptoms of arthritis. Um, and so mm -hmm. what another impact of this act is that uh, unlike drugs, dietary supplements are now considered safe until proven unsafe, okay? Um, so as long as they have this little claim that says these products haven't been regulated, these claims haven't been regulated by the FDA, they're allowed to make a lot of different claims because they're not understood in a legal and philosophical sense as drugs. They're basically considered a special category of food. And so one of the issues I'm looking at there is that the Food and Drug Administration has these sort of distinct categories of food and drugs. Interestingly, they are un regulated under the same administration. So I, I do find that fascinating. Um, but at the same time, this um, lack of a clearly defined middle space, you could say, uh, creates this concern, right, that they're regulated as special foods. Well, they make drug-like claims now uh, as long as they make them in a particular way, right? They aren't necessarily required to provide studies to back that up, right? And so obviously that can lead to potential dangers. It can at least lead to um, you know, intentional or maybe inadvertent deception of the public or, you know, for people to spend large amounts of money on things that they think might provide, not necessarily, they can't necessarily claim, claim that they cure something, 
but some kind of substantial treatment for an ailment or preventative preventative steps to avoid um, you know um, ailments or illnesses. Yeah, I'm very interested in this particular application, and and like, I think this is a really great example of the way that you know the game of definitions that philosophers seem obsessed with playing all the time can have these important real world implications because whether something is classified as a food or a drug, you know, plays out in the form of the policies and what what you can and and so I imagine, for example, that there's probably been active lobbying work by supplemental organizations to try to to shift them from the drug category and into the food category and have them viewed this way because of that sort of lower bar they then have to clear in terms of regulation and i think you make a really good point about potential harms here where like you might think well oh the worst is that somebody takes something that doesn't do anything but i mean obviously there's a concern of actual harm if something is untested but damaging but there's also i think the concern like um my friend alice who was on a little while ago was talking about you know the the push for superfoods like um uh uh, was what, what is the example? Blueberries, right? Like oh, blueberries yeah. are a, a antioxidant or something that prevents cancer or something like that. Right. And so, you know, that can that can be really harmful for individuals who are thinking, well, I want to, you know, use healthy natural alternatives to treat my diagnosis or something. So I'm going to eat a bunch of superfoods instead of taking, you know, the drugs that my doctor wants to prescribe. Right. Uh, so I do think that that that's a really valuable place to be trying to do some work there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes, cer certainly. I One of my points that I'm trying to make in the paper is that on both sides of this issue, there's always this potential for it to engender a certain kind of dogmatism about how we understand mm -hmm. these categories and then what we should do with the regulation of those categories in response to our understanding. So on the other side, I look at the, the creation of the Ministry of Ayush in uh, 2014 in India, and um, there were a couple of reasons why this was established. So uh, historically, it's important to understand that um, whenever, uh, during the, the British Empire's control of India, there was a large erosion of traditional medical practice in India as a result of that. Hmm. Um, and there were you know, a, couple of, a couple of instances where uh, Indian government tried to uh, correct for that to some degree. Um, so they created this ministry uh, to try to take seriously the potential efficacy of different modes of medical knowledge, including traditional medical practice. Um, and at the same time, there was a very practical concern for rural populations that had limited or no access to what we might call allopathic or sometimes just understood as, as Western medicine and physicians. Um, and so this ministry explicitly endorses food as medicine as a, as a legitimate interpretive mode. Um, and so it's led to some important strides in medical pluralism and access to healthcare, but at the same time, it's generated some difficulties and controversies regarding quackery and, and what we might call snake oil peddling. Um, so, for instance, India has a, a food safety and standards authority, the FSSA, um, but many businesses in India that produce foods and then market them as medicinal aren't scrutinized by this uh, regulatory authority in the way that other businesses are. Um, so one um, well-known example in those circles is a company called Patanjali that makes uh, Ayurvedic uh, products and, and they make a lot of uh, very strong claims to put it mildly, um, that they have a cooking oil that can promote hair growth 
uh, honey that treats mm -hmm. cough, cold, and fever and promotes early healing of injuries, for instance. Um, and then to some degree, lax standards are due to state level authority over determining adequate testing. And there's a vague national requirement that state licensing authorities should be satisfied on the safety and efficacy of the new drug. But what counts as you know, satisfactory in that case is obviously open to debate. Um, and so, you know, in kind of stepping back from those particular cases, um, I argue that dichotomous approaches can allow for classificatory ease, as in like we get two choices in terms of regulating this particular edible thing, but it can lead to issues with how to make sense of and regulate those things that may not be adequately interpreted as exclusively either a food or a drug. And then on the other side, what I call, I've called maybe, I've called them continuum-based approaches, but maybe overlapping approaches is a better term where we see the categories of food and drugs as overlapping with one another and allow for greater openness to the possibility that things we typically take to be foods can be medicinal, um, but at the same time, it can lead to vagueness regarding how these ought to be regulated, which obviously opens the door for um, quackery and deception. But really, I, I think that one of the interesting things I took away from, from my research on this topic was that that kind of comes up in both cases in different ways and for different reasons. And so for me, hermeneutics helps us to understand that our interpretations are interpretations. Um, they can be open to revision and dialogue and you know, should be a way of cultivating dialogue to avoid dogmatism on either side of this debate, but also I think in general, that's important because we see you know, a lot of, um, I think, hesitancy or um, dogmatic critique of the possibility that there could be forms of traditional medicine that could be efficacious. And then on the other side, we have things like the anti-vax movement, right? Um, that has its own obvious forms of dogmatism. Yeah, I really struggle with this. Um, I, you know, I am raised in the analytic tradition, believe that there are objective truths, and a skeptic am anxious about the ways in which traditional medicine and things that claim to be traditional medicine are frequently, I feel like, given a pass in similar ways that I feel like what would be considered simply abusive in, in other contexts, in religious contexts, are treated as acceptable in some kind of way. And so a lot of potential harms make it in the door there. So I definitely do have some concerns about that. I'm curious, how do you, do you feel like you want to continue to make a space for traditional medicine and there's something valuable to that, even if you're not particularly sympathetic to its efficacy? Do you feel like it does sometimes is borne out in having this kind of efficacy? And so we just need to be researching it more effectively. How do you, how do you deal with like trying to have a kind of pluralism about approaches that effectively distinguish, you know, finds a barrier, a line between, um, uh, genuinely harmful or problematic quackery, right? And the things that we still want to hold on to, even if they haven't been verified by, you know, Western medicine. Right. Yeah. So I think um, it's important just for one to maintain a, a position of humility about that. And also to, um, well, I mean, we can promote further research, which is happening to some extent about the efficacy of traditional medicines, uh, in various medical contexts. And so, you know, there are some examples of productive dialogue in those areas. Um, and, you know, that's also not to say that traditional medicine is devoid of its own empirical tradition. 
um, it's it's just um, I think it's important to to keep our options open and to try to promote research that is you know careful and methodical about this where we can um, rather than to close ourselves off to possibilities because obviously um, at the very least diet can make a tremendous impact on health um, and so I don't I think what what we've seen from the perspective of of allopathic medicine is going too far in neglecting the role of food and health. Um, and so there is, you know, there's very little uh, nutritional education in most medical schools that is starting to change now. Um, but this shift is very recent. And one of the things that I did in my dissertation is kind of document the emergence of that, because even in, US, in the US amongst like conventional MDs, we are starting to see things that are explicitly referred to as food pharmacies. Um, that are endorsed and um, that MDs participate in, and we're starting to see uh, we're starting to see a shift within me uh, medical practice and training where people are understanding the role that nutrition plays in health. And I think uh, on the other side, you know, sometimes we've gone too far in just discarding um, that role of food and health. That's interesting you mentioned that. I was sort of thinking before we talked. This idea that food and drug are on a spectrum, I think, is is makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But then I sort of wonder about how it seems to me we are reaching or possibly, you know, I've gone past a kind of cusp moment with regard to drugs, broadly speaking, the concept of drugs, the war on drugs that like mm -hmm. we're seeing widespread moves for legalization and decriminalization on a bunch of fronts. Right. But I don't feel like we've. I don't feel like there's been a massive sort of consciousness shift with regard to food that is sort of comparable to that. It feels like, you know, we still have a very sort of 90s viewpoint when it comes to how we approach food, broadly speaking. I'm curious if you agree that there has been a kind of asymmetry in the shifting, the evolving of these concepts um, and what you think may be a cause of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And usually when we see... Um, when we see people come out and advocate for unconventional food regulation policies, uh, I'll give you an example in a second, uh, we, we often think of them as, as pretty wild and, and far out. And so because so, there has been a movement <laughs> to, um, okay, I'll say first, in my, like in this particular article that I recently published, I'm really understanding drugs in the medicinal sense. But in my dissertation, I also talk about drugs in the illicit or detrimental sense. Um, and there are foods that, you know, so in nutritional science and uh, in psychology, there's ongoing debate about the very possibility of food addiction. Um, but there are a growing amount of people who are uh, defending some kind of view of food addiction, at least in certain cases. Um, and so as that relates to things like eating disorders, um, also to things like overconsumption of sugar. And so there have been um, you know, experts in these areas that have called for the regulation of sugar, similar to the way that we might regulate alcohol, uh, for instance, right? Um, I think maybe in California- <laughs> Alcohol is just sugar, right? Yeah, there have been people who have advocated for limits on the proximity of, you know, soda machines to schools and things like that, or a tax, like a specific mm -hmm. tax on on uh, sugary beverages or candy. Uh, and so I think, you know, regardless of the, you know, the, I, I think, well, let's say, um, 
underlying <laughs> that, I think, is a philosophical perspective or an interpretation uh, that calls into question this idea of food and drugs as overlapping or uh, as distinct or disparate categories. Yeah, I mean, how do you not call sugar a drug? It seems like it's so obviously a drug in, in like all yeah. of the ways that we understand drugs for better and for worse. And so like, how would you not describe what companies are doing as pumping their food full of drugs? Right. Yeah, I um, I really think that there, it, it, you know, it's something that we need to discuss and dialogue further, again, in a way that doesn't have this kind of automatic uh, negative reaction, you know, to try to at least cultivate a sense of openness to that possibility. Um, so, I, yeah, I do find it fascinating uh, in, my, in my research, definitely. Do you have, and I know asking anybody to predict anything in, in the more than two days from now future makes little sense at the moment, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about like, what do you look, what do you think our food is going to look like 20 years from now? Is it going to look roughly the same? Are there going to be sort of substantial shifts you think in our lifetime in how we perceive food? Is it going to be like forced on us by climate change or do you think there's going to be other things that are driving that change? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, I know exactly what it's going to be like. <laughs> Just kidding, but uh, yeah, like we'll, I, we'll all be vegans like you. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I tend to, you know, be on the side of thinking that at minimum we're we're going to see, and we're already seeing, uh, in terms of in terms of kind of distancing uh, food choices, or at least kind of kind of separating food choices from personal identity. Uh, I think that we are going to see greater uh, or a greater volume of meatless meals, meat or meals maybe that don't contain animal products. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I would like to see, I don't know if I'll, I don't want to dogmatically say everybody has to be vegan or else, you know, a lot of people will be like, go mm -hmm. vegan or fuck off. I'm, I'm, I'm still a philosopher whenever I come to this in the sense that I'm trying to help people think for themselves. Uh, and to think critically about these issues. Um, and so I think we are going to see a higher volume of meatless meals. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to be related to people's identity in terms of what kind of eater they are. Um, but, you know, I would like to see greater critical reflection. I think to some extent that'll be spurred by climate change, and it already is, just given how industrial animal agriculture um, you know, is one of the major contributors of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but I think one of the issues that I've encountered, which I think the literature is moving away from this and acknowledging this as an issue, but I think when we really saw the, the beginnings of food ethics and animal ethics as such, which a lot of people, you know, point to the mid-1970s, Singer's Animal Liberation, um, there was a, I think there's been a lot of focus put on personal dietary choice as if this is all, you know, this is all your fault. Right. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of move away from that. Like, obviously I think at the end of the day, our choices do matter. They don't happen in a vacuum. And so I am kind of concerned about what they refer to as the causal impotence objection in the literature on this, um, because I don't mm -hmm. think our decisions happen in a vacuum. Like at the end of the day, um, people aren't going to produce food that, uh, enough people aren't purchasing to make it profitable. So like that does matter. It shouldn't be discarded at the same time. If we, if we neglect the larger systems that are at play in perpetuating this and also trying to influence our psychology, 
about dietary choice, then I think we would be remiss, uh, not only philosophically, but in terms of, you know, not not trying to uh, alleviate the the implications of our current food system. And you said meatless meals there. Are you sort of deliberately discounting or think that like lab grown meat is not going to become scalable and viable? Or do you mean that like by meat, did you mean, you know, meat that we got from animals who suffered? Yeah, I guess you could say, uh, yes, flesh that comes directly from a once living animal. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you're, yeah, you're yeah. not making a point one way or the other when it comes to the issue of, um, uh, uh, lab grown meat. Yeah, I do think that that's going to be viable. I think that it's going to become more affordable, uh, possibly sooner than people expect. Um, I don't have, I haven't done the research to see what the impact of that are going to be. Obviously, you know, to produce anything at scale, it's going to be in some kind of industrial practice with implications for the environment, probably positive and negative. Um, mm -hmm. and so, yes, that may, that may become a staple part of our diet that may replace conventional, uh, meat foods. Um, but mm -hmm. I also think that we're going to see in general people eating more meals that actually at least don't contain conventional animal products. Okay. So to that end, let's drill down on a specific example that I believe you wrote a paper on, which is mayonnaise. Uh, you <laughs> and I are both, I would say, classify as foodies. And I'm curious, just broadly speaking, first of all, talk to me about your relationship with mayonnaise. Does mayonnaise play a role in your cooking? It does now. So, well, okay, I guess, is it mayonnaise, right? That's the question. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't grow up with, I didn't grow up in a mayonnaise-oriented family, actually. Mayonnaise mm -hmm. was, was not a uh, thing that we really kept at home or used for some reason. Maybe it's just that my parents had an aversion to it. I, I can recall as a kid going to McDonald's and getting the uh, chicken sandwiches with specifically requesting no mayo on them. And I think my parents also just had a concern about like mayonnaise sitting out because it contained egg products and maybe that making me sick. I don't know. For whatever reason, we were not big mayonnaise eaters in my household growing up. Um, and mm -hmm. I just never, I never really had it on hand. Like when we lived together, I definitely didn't have it on hand. But also whenever, <laughs> whenever we first moved in together, I was like just eating handfuls of spinach as a snack and like was on this major health kick um, that I could probably, probably be to my benefit to come back to to some extent, maybe not just snacking on spinach, but you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, whenever I uh, eliminated animal products from my diet, then I started to really focus on all of the the not necessarily very healthy vegan things. You know, there's a lot of amazing vegan junk food out there. Uh, Oreos are mm -hmm. technically vegan, definitely not healthy, right? Like hydrogenated <laughs> oil is technically vegan. Uh, so, sure. um, yeah, <laughs> you're the only one who suffers when it's when it's consumed, <laughs> right? Um, so I uh, I did kind of get back into mayonnaise, you know, or what we what I can call vegan mayo, you know. Um, later as I, whenever it started becoming more readily available at grocery stores or, you know, whenever we would travel and try different vegan restaurants and now we have it on hand all the time. And, uh, in fact, my partner, uh, Jenny recently started making sandwiches and pasta salads for, uh, one of the local convenience stores in town that are vegan, uh, the convenience store isn't vegan, just our food. But, um, anyway, so yeah, we always have a ton of mayonnaise or vegan mayo on hand. Um, and so 
around the same time that this became more readily available and around um, you know, the same time there was this controversy with the, uh, the company uh, Unilever, which is like this multinational corporation um, that has many, many different brands, including Hellman's and Best Mayo. Um, they were trying to basically take legal action against what was originally called Hampton Creek. Now they're called Just or Just Inc. Um, and they made the, the Just Mayo. It wasn't the first wasn't the first vegan mayo type thing on the market, but it became a huge phenomenon. And I think aesthetically, I at least you know find it indistinguishable from regular mayonnaise. Um, and so they that's right. Yes. Yeah. So the, the FDA does require that for a product to be labeled as mayonnaise, it has to contain egg or egg product of some sort. They specify and, you know, in the regulation itself, um, the, the restrictions on that. Now they called their product just mayo. Uh, at the same time, Unilever was trying to take legal action against them by saying that they were misleading consumers. Um, this ended up with the agreement that Just Mayo would would make modifications to uh, some of the images on their packaging. Um, and what happened after that is, is kind of hilarious to me. But Unilever, through the Hellman's and, and Best Mayo uh, or Best Foods, whatever brands, uh, started to make their own vegan mayo after this all happened. And now that's hugely popular. And interestingly, now uh, the Just Company has kind of moved on to just egg. They may still make the mayo, but I don't think they're making it to the scale they once did. Um, so now, like if you're going grocery shopping at a regular grocery store like Walmart or Kroger, you can see like the Hellman's brand vegan mayo everywhere. It's actually hard to find the, the, the mayo from, from Just or other smaller companies. Um, so they ended up just kind of, I don't know if they beat them necessarily, but they ended up just joining in in this creation of vegan mayo type products. And so what I was working on in, uh, I haven't written the full paper yet. That's an ongoing struggle. Uh, I've given a few presentations on the topic under the title, the uh, ethics and ontology of mayonnaise. Um, but I was kind of looking at some of, some of the philosophy. I know it's a great title. I think uh, it always, it always at least arouses laughter from people. Um, I started looking at some of the, the philosophical implications about that as it relates to food ontology, um, not just in terms of how we understand what makes a food a member of a particular category of foods, but also in the way that language is philosophical as well as political. Um, and so we've seen similar phenomena since then come up in whether or not things can be called milk or ice cream or meat. You know, our cheese, right? Uh, we see a lot of, of legal controversy since then in these areas. And to me, it kind of helps to illustrate um, the way that language is a, is a philosophical and political process that's ongoing. And that, um, you know, regardless of whether there might be like legitimate reasons for doing this, there's also a lot of profit motivated reasons. And there's a lot of concern uh, about what we call things and who gets to control what we call things. Foods. Yeah, it seems to be like the the profit driven concern is the primary concern in a lot absolutely. of these circumstances. Like the yes. afraid of competition is the primary fear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to some extent, we're seeing that rectified because you know Tyson now uh, either has released or is working on plant based meats. Um, you know, Ben and Jerry's now makes a uh, vegan ice cream uh, with an almond, maybe other uh, bases for that. 
So we are seeing more of these big companies that are just deciding to do the thing that they were kind of revolting against in general. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I mean, I, there's kind no ethical consumption, right? <laughs> right? It's like there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Uh, at the same time, that doesn't necessarily flatten out every possible decision that we could make. Um, right. And so, I mean, so, I guess in, in the short term, I, we can I can buy vegan Ben and Jerry's and kind of leverage that. Yeah, it's sort of like how do I how do I cope ethically with this? Because what, you, what I've just described is large corporations crowded out smaller innovative companies and then replicated what they were doing, which is like what Google does and places like that do all the exactly. time. Um, exactly. At the same time, you know, those large companies are then making vegan alternatives accessible to large groups of people, and so like that's good. So yeah, like, what, what do we yeah. do? Do you consume that so that you encourage them to do more of it, even though they well, were monsters in the beginning? It's an ongoing struggle for me, especially moving to Louisiana, where the there is a there is a uh, there is a vegan scene. Uh, it's mostly in New Orleans, a little bit in Baton Rouge. Uh, I live in Lake Charles, which is the southwest corner, like just a few minutes from Texas. And it's it's not so much happening out here. You know, there's some stuff. Um, so, you know, the nearest grocery store to my house is the Walmart neighborhood market. And they now carry an amazing line, like tons of vegan products, right? Kroger has tons of stuff. Uh, we don't have we don't have like a legit health food grocery store here. So sometimes if we're if we have to go out of town to run an errand, we'll stop at like natural grocers or whatever, you know, in the nearest larger city. Um, but you know, for the most part, we are going to those places and supporting their uh, you know carrying of those products. And uh, I don't know, I don't. That's I guess that's not a way out. You know, I have a lot of concerns about this, but at the same time, uh, they are they are making some kind of effort to provide those and make them accessible to people who wouldn't find them otherwise. And so maybe that could be the impetus for some shift in thought. You know, as long as they also take my mm -hmm. philosophy of food course when I offer it. <laughs> I think the funniest part of all of this to me is just the role of mayo in it. I mean, speaking from my own sort of personal hermeneutics of mayonnaise, I was raised in um, a family where, where mayonnaise was generally associated with Gentile food, right? And, and generally the blandest kind of Gentile food. Right, yes. And so like, you know, you being someone who I associate with the kind of Cajun food that will melt people's faces right. off, it's right. funny to me to imagine you cooking with mayo for any purpose. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we, okay, so sometimes, especially whenever Beyond and Impossible Meats first came out, you know, we wanted to just experience the flavors of those things on their own, um, at least initially. So it's like, yeah, well, I want to have some kind of, you know, mayonnaise can be a, yeah, like a bland lubricant <laughs> for your sandwich. So like I needed like something so that it wasn't, you know, wanted to be, you know, it, it does keep things from being dry. It's like very moist. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, no, uh, and it is definitely bland. <laughs> it has its role. It has a, it has a purpose. It has it can have a tang. It does. Too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And there are a couple of of meals in which it it does serve a valuable cooking role. I'm not. I won't deny that or something. Please don't at me with your mayonnaise right. recipes or anything. <laughs> it's it's just amusing to me. I did, by the way. I tried um, one of the Beyond Burgers. It, did, it didn't work for me yet, unfortunately, but I, I continue to, to be hopeful that, that 
something will come along that will allow me to eat less meat because as you know as someone who lived with me that was always a struggle for me someone who um has a real hard time with anything that's vegetable related right um, right 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 yeah uh have you tried the impossible whopper i don't think i have i think i only i think our our wegmans only stocked the beyond meats, okay so i'm not yeah. sure i've gotten to try the impossible one yet but maybe i'll maybe i'll try that one as well yeah 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 that. Keep in touch about it. Let me know what you think. Um, yeah, there's mm-hmm. and there's more and more things coming out like that now, which I, I refer to as kind of like the the 21st century faux meats. Um, there's like a whole mm-hmm. wave of those that kind of started with the Beyond Burger, where it's just substantially different. You know, obviously not indistinguishable from what we usually call meat, but uh, also something mm-hmm. that is that is worlds away from the the Boca burger or you know like veggie like black bean patties and stuff like that so a lot of brands are making their own take on that now um some better some worse uh so i am yeah i, I mean yeah i don't want to go too far into other stuff but i have another paper that i'm working on 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 faux meat and food ontology um which has to do with the the kind of symbolic perpetuation of animals as things that we eat that you know that could be a an unintended consequence of this sort of stuff right is that i don't know if i want to say backfire because i don't know what everybody's intention is you know really beyond an impossible or, or largely marketing to a demographic of people that are interested in eating less meat but aren't necessarily going vegan or vegetarian mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah. So I really starting to get short on time here. I mean, barely we, we spend all of our time doing theory, like good philosophers. Um, I do want to hear a little bit about sort of the practical side of your experiences with stuff like Farm Forward and and Better Food Foundations. And I think in one of your papers you talked about how you see Farm Forward as fundamentally a pragmatist organization. We've talked about pragmatism recently on the episode. So I was curious sort of what you mean by that and how you see that playing out in like the the nitty gritty applied side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so um, I started working with Farm Forward in 2011. So yeah, it was about halfway through the master's program, and um, uh, they took me on as a like a researcher, basically initially. Um, my master's advisor Bernie Rollin was on their board of directors, and um, the CEO and executive director reached out to him to see if he knew any grad students that might be interested in helping out. And so Bernie referred them to me. And now it's been in October, it'll be 10 years uh, that I've been with them. Mm. And so um, I started off as, yeah, like I said, a researcher just doing compiling annotated bibliographies a lot of the time about different positions so that we could um, rec- make recommendations when we engage in consultancy with other groups. So like at the time, ASPCA was just starting to get interested in having more specific positions about um, animal ethics and animal welfare in agriculture rather than their previous focus mostly on companion animals. Um, so I drafted a bunch of a bunch of basically like summaries and bibliographies with recommendations, like multi-tiered recommendations on like why de-beaking chickens is not a good thing. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, you're trying to, to, worry about this particular symptom of agriculture without worrying about the lying underlying conditions like overcrowding and things like that, which lead to excessive mm-hmm. feather pecking and cannibalism. But I was going to, I also would say like, okay, so debeaking, not really a good thing. Um, but should we be using a laser or should we be using a hot blade? You know, um, 
one leads to acute pain, right? Uh, one leads to more chronic long-term pain. Um, and so I was trying to make very specific kinds of recommendations like that. And so in terms of the, the influence on pra of pragmatism on uh, form forward, um, I'm really in that the article that I had written about that several years ago, I'm drawing on three main elements of pragmatist theory and ethics. Um, and I'll also just say I'm indebted to my friends at the Society for the Advancement of American Philosophy because I'm I'm really kind of a dabbler in pragmatism, but I have been to a couple of their conferences and um, Aaron McKenna and Zach Piso in particular do some awesome work in pragmatism and Paul B. Thompson also, in, especially as it relates to agriculture. So I'm looking at, at three main uh, dimensions of pragmatist ethics uh, as they're embodied in form forward. So one of those is ethical pluralism, basically this aversion to reducing all moral judgments to a single ethical principle, um, particularism, trying to account for the unique characteristics of particular scenarios and the role that that ought to play in ethical decision-making, and then amelioration, trying to work to make a situation better in regards to some particular goal or, or sometimes referred to as an end in view. Uh, and so, uh, for instance, the multi-tiered recommendations that we were making to the ASPCA uh, help to illustrate that kind of approach uh, where we can say, like, there might be like a general problem here. Here are multiple ways that we might try to rectify that with the advantages and disadvantages of each one. Um, I think we one of the one of the major accomplishments of Form Forward has been starting a conversation and gaining recognition for the concept of what we call genetic welfare, which is something that's separate from environmental welfare of animals. Um, so, for instance, uh, broiler chickens have been uh, selectively bred over the 20th century, um, like for their breasts to grow at a very fast rate. Um, this leads to a lot of muscular and skeletal problems in those chickens. Even if you put them in the best possible environment, whatever that might be, they're still going to have these welfare issues related to the way that, they're, uh, that they've been selectively bred over time, right? And so that, that attention to the particularities of the, the genetic structure for those animals, I think, has been uh, an important conversation that was largely omitted or not included in previous welfare-related discussions. Uh, I also, and I'll, I'll, I don't know how long it'll take you to edit this. I know sometimes it takes a while, so no pressure. Um, but I'm organizing an event on February 24th, which I do almost every year, the Jonathan Safran Foer Virtual Visit. And so that is basically a, it's a conversation starter where the author, Jonathan Safran Foer, who wrote Eating Animals and We Are the Weather and a series of recent op-eds on pandemics and agriculture um, is going to be discussing some issues related to those topics with, with students and faculty and individuals and really anyone who wants to join us. Um, and so I've been organizing that event since uh, 2012. And we've had, I think, in total, almost 20,000 participants. So I'm hoping to top, top you know, 20,000 in total after this round. And um, it's just a, in that way, we, we don't come at this, and Jonathan doesn't come at this from a dogmatic perspective, but we're trying to involve people and to help them think for themselves um, about what we, what we might want to accomplish, how this relates to dietary choices, how this relates to larger systems, and you know, the importance of, of thinking for ourselves about these issues rather than coming in with a singular dogmatic answer. Um, so I think that's been great. Um, since that then, really interesting. yeah, 
So since then, I'll just say briefly, um, a few years ago, we started Farm Forward, um, started or we had a sister organization uh, with some shared staff members called Better Food Foundation. And we're uh, one of the organizations that's spearheading an initiative called Default Veg, which is what I've been working on most recently. And so um, Default Veg is basically just the idea of uh, making anywhere food is served. So that could be schools, businesses, uh, conferences, whatever, right? A lot of things that aren't happening right now. Um, anywhere food is served, making the default food option plant-based, basically. So not, not taking away people's choice to opt into animal products, but switching the default. And so uh, I didn't come up with this. I, I think it was actually generated first by the theologian David Clough at the University of Chester, uh, who also works with us on a number of initiatives, and he has a great uh, Christian-based uh, organization regarding animal ethics called Creature Kind that I, I recommend people check out as well. Um, but the the philosophy of default veg is based on what's sometimes called nudge theory that was developed by uh, the behavioral economist Richard Thaler and the legal scholar Cass Sunstein. And so it basically proposes positive reinforcement and indirect suggestions to influence behavior and decision-making. Um, and, you know, it kind of just, it starts with this idea that in whenever we participate in, in institutional decisions, there, are, there often is some kind of default in place. Um, and so how can, we, how can we leverage that default to help guide people towards uh, particular behaviors? So this has a lot of empirical support from organ donation in several countries um, where they had a system where people automatically would opt in to be organ donors, or they would automatically be classified as organ donors, and they would have to opt out of that if they didn't want to be. And so they, their choice is not taken away, but the default is shifted in a way that, that actually led to market increases in the amount of organ donors in those places where it was implemented. Um, and so the, the, the sort of progenitors of default veg were thinking, well, let's try to uh, apply this nudge theory to uh, this sector to, you know, food choice. And we are, there's, uh, we're starting to get more empirical evidence of this. There have, there have been some, a couple of good studies about default veg at conferences where it's led to a uh, market increase in plant-based meals that are consumed rather than meat uh, containing meals. And I, my main project with them is managing what we call the default veg ambassador program. And so that's a program where we provide resources and one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with anyone who wants to join. It's a volunteer option, um, but you know, so we have a lot of students, um, interns from other organizations where, this, where one of their options for their internship is to work with us. Um, and anyone who wants to join, because it's just something that you could implement at your own home or where you work or where you go to school uh, or any event that you might be organizing, and um, to, to basically switch the menu to plant-based defaults while not taking people's decision away if they wanted to opt into animal products. And so I find that to be really exciting um, and it's been going well so far. And that, that's mostly what I've been putting my time into aside from you know, teaching five classes a semester at McNeese. Mm -hmm. That sounds really great. I want, um, first of all, this will definitely be out before the event you were talking about. This will be out tomorrow. So it'll oh, definitely be okay. out and you should, so you should give me the link for that event so that folks can make sure they can sign up for that. And also, you know, give me information about the 
default uh, option because I think, you know, there are folks I know who organize events who would certainly be interested in hearing more about that. And I'm very much in favor of that kind of um, nudge uh, ability to uh, make things better without sort of ruffling too many feathers. Yeah, absolutely. I will, I will share those links with you immediately after we finish. That's great. So unfortunately, I have so many questions. I still have many things I'm more around to ask you about, but we're way over time. Uh, so I need to uh, put you into the torture chamber and we yes. will have to save more discussions of uh, applied ethics for next time. So okay. uh, sadly for you, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Yeah, oh, my whole life has been leading up to this moment. Literally. I know, it's basically everything that we did for several years in grad school turned into this one activity. Ooh. I know, it's really, we've come full circle, my friend. The circle is now Yeah, complete. yeah. What's after this? <laughs> yeah, right, for folks who are not familiar, there is actually a round two, so you'll have to come back and deal with that okay. at some point. Um, for folks who are not familiar, the enlightening round, I'm going to give you a series of things. You are going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Okay. Now, this is going to be the hard part for you. You don't get to hedge. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'm going to define my terms and have it all the way as I want it kind of thing. Real or not real. Those are your only options, okay? Okay, I'm ready. Okay, so first of all, let me ask, is anything real? Yes. Wait, is any, does oh. anything refer to something particular? Or? Like, like, is there anything <laughs> in your ontology at all? <laughs> You're gonna make this hard on me. I appreciate that. Um, all right, so let's let's find out what's real. Is okay. the external world real? Yes. Okay. Colors, real or not real? Yes, real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness. Very real. Mm. So this is why we're besties. Free will. <laughs> oh yeah, real. Uh, and now we're not besties again. <laughs> it was no. fun. Well, I've been teaching existentialism. <laughs> uh, ugh, ugh, it's ruining you. Selves or persons? Real. Okay. Genders? Real. Races? Mm. I'm going to go with real. <laughs> There's a lot of deep breathing over there. Uh, okay, species. It's like, what do I even mean? <laughs> um, species, I'm going to say not real. Okay. Morality? Real. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Not real. Hmm, interesting. God or gods? Yeah, you can't qualify this. Uh, mm -mm. Okay. Not real. Okay. Society? Real. Numbers? Hmm. Not real. Money? Mm, too real. <laughs> Is that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, fictional characters real mm, holes like a hole in the ground uh, oh yeah real for sure <laughs> chairs 
Not real. Sandwiches? Oh, real. Science? Real. Natural laws? Not real. Beauty? Real. You have been reading existentialists. <laughs> Love? Real. Mm. Causality? I gotta go with not real on that one. Mm. And finally, time. Real. Okay, you have survived. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like... I feel amazing. I feel better than I've ever felt before. <laughs> this is your element. You were born for this. I know. I'm like, can we just can we just keep doing this after uh, <laughs> just, just list things? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do like the lack of ability to qualify or hedge. I think that's important. Yeah. That's you important. find that fun? <laughs> well, it's it's important to have a break from always qualifying and hedging. I think. You know what it's I mean? True. This is this is like our yeah. It's like a a break it makes you think of like speed chess right it's like you have to just do the thing you can't do the the usual thing that we always do yeah 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 we're, we're always trying to say but or you know like back in the day well you know it's both and neither and neither neither nor both and neither and exactly i'm still i think i'm still very much there in a lot of ways so. mm -hmm. yeah no I, i've never left well, the problem is the limits of language, right? The Tao that right. can be told is not the eternal Tao. Yes, that is that is amongst the many problems. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah amongst yeah. our problems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Joey, I could do this forever, but sadly, we've got to wrap it up. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Yes. Yeah, so um, all my published work is on josephtumanello.academia.edu. I'll send there in the link in case you don't know how to spell my last name, which is totally fine. Um, and you can also look me up on formforward.com and betterfoodfoundation.com and see a lot of the projects um, that we work on, many of which I'm directly involved with. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. This has been a lot of fun catching up, and we'll have yeah. to have you back on at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And whatnot. Yeah, I'm grateful for you having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patrons, Stefan and Trenton Nauer. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon patrons, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian Accent and Existence Makes My Pussy Throb, I Want to Be the Tempeh in a Foucault and Camus Sandwich, Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and David Maslich. Thank you all. Without your help, this would not be possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review on our podcast app. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embracethevoid. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter how things feel right now, remember, you are the void and the void is you.